When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to All The Small Things with me, Venetia Lamana. If you're new here, you are so very welcome. In this podcast, I am going to be talking to some incredible thought leaders and change makers who are really doing such important work for both people and planet. Now, this week is no exception. I'm going to be speaking to one of the most inspiring people I've had the privilege of meeting. Before we get there, if you're new to the show, I would absolutely love if you could subscribe and listen back to some other episodes. I have some absolute corkers in the archive for you, and I really, really hope you enjoy them. Hassan Akkad is a documentary filmmaker, photographer and activist. He fled Syria in 2015 and after an extremely traumatic three-month journey across Europe, he arrived in London. He documented his journey, which later became part of the BAFTA award-winning documentary Exodus, Our Journey to Europe. Hassan also works closely with Choose Love, a refugee advocacy organisation whose important work I'm sure listeners are familiar with. And if you're not, I will leave a link to them in the episode notes. At the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, he applied to be a cleaner at his local hospital, Whips Cross in East London. And during his time on the COVID ward, Hassan shared images of his fellow cleaners, porters and cooks on his social media, which went viral. Then when he found out that porters and cleaners working for the NHS would not be protected through the government's NHS bereavement scheme, he was outraged and his campaign to include those people in the scheme directly led to the second notorious government U-turn of 2020. Hassan's been featured in Vogue, The Guardian and BBC News to name a few and he has just released his debut book, a memoir titled Hope Not Fear. This book charts a path of compassion, bravery and empathy, often found in the most unlikely of places. Hassan's story is an account of dealing with seemingly impossible situations with immense courage and grace, showing how standing united in kindness and love is the single most important message of the world today. Hassan is just unbelievably inspiring and I really hope you love this conversation and of course buy his book which will be linked in the episode notes. Without any further ado here is Hassan Akkad on All The Small Things. Let us start as we always do. I would love to hear if you have any kind of morning routine. Morning routine yes. I wake up I go straight to the kitchen because uh, breakfast is my favorite meal. So I make breakfast, I have my breakfast, then I do a bit of stretching and my daily breathing exercise. That's pretty much what I do every morning while I'm listening. So I do the stretching and the breathing exercise while I'm listening to something in the back, like the Guardian or the New York Times as like a, a sound in the background. What kind of breathing exercise are you doing and where did you learn how to do that? 
it was very recent, actually, a few months ago, I was going through a tough phase and my friend Hayden suggested that I start doing the Wim Hof breathing exercises, which you can find on YouTube. And I was literally shocked. After I did it, I felt a bit high and I felt like my anxiety level dropped very low. And since then, I've just been doing them daily. They're, they're incredible. High on your own supply with Wim Hof. <laughs> it is remarkable what you can do just with your own breath. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. You can only know until you try, because when my friend told me about it, when Hayden told me, about it, I was like, I mean, what is a breathing exercise anyway? When someone tells you a breathing exercise, how could you exercise with breathing? But then when you try it, it's the art of taking all these deep breaths and then holding them for a certain amount of time. It does magical things to your body. Yeah, you can see why Wim has such a strong following of loyal <laughs> yeah. people who are just obsessed with him. Now, we are mainly here to talk about your memoir, Hope Not Fear. You must feel so proud. Congratulations. I didn't find it an easy read, but it is just fantastic. And you're a brilliant writer. I can't fathom that English isn't your first language. So huge congratulations. Thank you. Um, I'm conscious that the process of looking back and the process of promoting a book like this involves a lot of looking back. I know that that must be difficult. So please today only talk about what you feel comfortable because I really understand that that must be a, a tricky process. I often talk about people's childhood on this podcast just to give our listeners a really good grounding of um, the person I'm talking to. So I would love to hear about your memories of growing up in Syria. Tell me about Damascus and your family and some of your strongest memories of childhood. Well, first of all, thank you for the encouraging words. When you're about to have a book published, especially if it's a very personal book, if it's a memoir, it's a very nerve-wracking phase. So... Thank you. You are giving me some confidence by your comments. I appreciate that. So my childhood was split between Saudi and Syria, between Riyadh and Damascus. I am one of five. I have three sisters and a brother. I'm, I'm in the middle. And my parents are wonderful. They're amazing. But they're very traditional. <laughs> so I think I wrote about this in the book about growing up and never hearing my parents saying that we're proud of you and how the effects that can have on us. But I would love to say, like, I would love to start with the positive things of how, like, caring and loving they were and how, despite all the difficulties that we had back then, they always wanted to provide for us, to care for us. They didn't have the vocabulary to express that, but their actions spoke very loud. I was a troublemaker. I, I often threw tantrums. I was very needy and I was obsessed with video games and with watching films. And as a child, I was always curious. So I grew up in a conservative, traditional society, which was very insular and was very closed. But I was always curious. I always had questions. And because back then we didn't have access as children these days have, I would go to my parents to ask these questions. And unfortunately, not all of my questions were asked. But despite all of that, I would like to say that I had a happy childhood. I have so many memories of us back home, especially in our first house. It was an apartment, actually, just crowded around a dinner table. And the highlight of the day was eating. I love eating. I mean, I, I, I think I've established that now. <laughs> <laughs> Food is such a feature. I love it because I'm also a, a big big food person and the food references <laughs> in the book are so strong and I was like yes I'm so here for this <laughs> yeah 
my mom would always send me to get falafel. She would send me to get 30 falafels and then I would always come home with like missing falafels <laughs> in the bag. And my mom would be like, what happened to them? I'm like, oh, I just munched on them on the way. So yeah, that's, that's pretty much my childhood. <laughs> and your dad also owned and run a pizza restaurant, right? Yes, he did, which was an impeccable perk growing up to have a dad who can provide endless pizzas. My friends would always say like, well, why don't you get us a pizza to school? And I would do that. It was an incredible feature. And my friends respected me and liked me for it. <laughs> Instant friend points, if you can provide yeah. <laughs> pizza. Um, it's interesting hearing you talk about how you were a troublemaker, because I'm assuming that extended to the classroom and you actually ended up being a teacher as a profession from the age of 19. So it's very interesting that that came full circle for you, having gone from being a troublemaker to being the teacher. I was such a troublemaker when I was a student. Most of my teachers back then would say, I hope that you'll, be, you'll become a teacher one day. So it did ha eventually happen. I mean, it was karma that I became a teacher. And it happened by pure coincidences because I was working in retail back then. And then I got this chance to go for a, an interview to teach English at a, a private school in Damascus, one of the, like, the best schools in Damascus. And I got the job and it completely changed my, my perspective of everything because I, I was like a street hustler when I was in my late teens. I was always loitering in the streets looking for trouble or going for joy rides with my friends, drifting, running away from the police. And, and then it was shocking to everybody, my relatives and my friends, when I became a teacher, like, you are a teacher? Like, that? no, <laughs> that's, that's not going to work. But it did. It worked. <laughs> Something that I think will be interesting for listeners to know is that you actually taught yourself English. You taught yourself through the power of which boy band is it that you cite? Backstreet Boys. Backstreet Boys. <laughs> Tell us about the process of teaching yourself a language. Well, it wasn't easy back then. We were still learning the English alphabet, year seven, year eight. So imagine you're like 13, 14, still learning the English alphabet. So at school, we didn't have the facility or, or the resources to learn English properly back then. And because I had American cousins, American Syrian cousins who used to visit every summer, I was always very envious and jealous of their language skills because to me, they spoke like the films that I watched. So I ended up just listening to songs and downloading lyrics and looking them up in the actual dictionary, not a digital one, just to learn words and learn how to speak. But it was very funny because my resources was, was songs and films. I didn't speak like a normal human being. I, I, I spoke like a, you know, like a computer. <laughs> but when my dad noticed that I had this urge to learn English, he started getting me books, which was very helpful because I was only able to speak English and read, but I couldn't really write. And then with those, all these English books, I, I was able to properly use the language as if it was my own and ended up studying English literature at uni and became an English teacher. <laughs> and I guess also it has, I mean, just learning it and being so good with it just ended up having the most profound impact on your life and the country that you've ended up living in and the ambition for ending up in the UK because obviously it was your access to the language that made you feel like that would be the place where you could I guess integrate the best but before we get there can you tell our listeners a little bit about how your involvement with protesting in Syria began because against such tyranny and despite the grave risks, you were moved to speak out against the regime. It seems like this was the catalyst for you. I've heard you talk about how it was at this moment that you found your voice. So can you tell our listeners about, about that time? Growing up in a dictatorship in a totalitarian country, it's not easy. In these countries, people are politically hijacked. 
there's only usually one political party. And in Syria's case, there was the Ba'ath Party, the only political party in Syria. And we were not taught politics. We had a class called nationalism. So we were taught about the achievements of that immortal leader, as they would call him. And basically, we were not taught about our rights, about rights to protest, freedom to speak out, none of that. So when the Arab Spring ignited in Tunisia in 2011, the uprising started in Damascus, Collectively, people in Syria had this political awakening. They could see that this is a very positive change that could really affect us and affect our future generations. So most people got involved and most people joined protests. Millions of Syrians joined protests and I happened to be one of them. I still remember and I I wrote about my first day going on a protest in a country which is run by the secret police, essentially. It was a cocktail of emotions because there was this fear that I could get caught and punished for joining these protests, but also this incredible awakening of like, wow, I can go against the current and speak out for what I believe in. And it was beautiful. It was like one of the best moments of my life going on that first protest in Damascus in early 2011. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, I I have quite a politically engaged uh, listenership. So I think a lot of them will have experienced that kind of awakening that you cite there. And that kind of feeling of empowerment, like our voice matters and we can do something and we can stand up for what we believe in. But things took a bit of a turn for you. You were one of, was it eight people that was arrested after your first yeah. protest? And yeah. reading about you, you talk about your experiences and what happened to you during this time before you started to seek asylum in Syria. And it, it's not easy reading about it. And I cannot imagine what it was like living through it. How was the process of writing about that time for you? Was it cathartic in any way? Right. So to give the to give the listeners a bit of context, I wrote about what happened as a result of protesting and, and filming protests. And what happened is basically what happened to hundreds of thousands of Syrians is that they got arrested and detained and tortured. And that happened to me as well. I mean, it was bleak. It was dark. It was something that I never expected that would happen to me ever in my life. And I've done interviews since I've been here and I talked about my experience, but I never went into details, you know, when you're writing a book, when you want to write about something, you want to go for it. Like, I want you to walk in my footsteps. So you want to go for the details and recalling that memory. It was really tough. (laughs) It was very, very tough. I, I struggled. I genuinely struggled. I could remember it very, very well. But I, I think what happened after that incident is that I put it in a box and I left it there and I didn't want to touch it. I didn't want to open it for a while. But then when I wanted to write about it, I opened that box and with opening that box, it came all the emotions and uh, I struggled. I genuinely struggled. Like I would come back from these writing sessions and go to, like, to, to my sofa and, and I uh, genuinely feel like I'm paralyzed. Like it debilitated me. It really affected me. But then after like a couple of months, it helped me reprocess it. And magically, it was cathartic. It helped me. I no longer have... So I do have nightmares, uh, reoccurring nightmares about what happened. But now the frequency of the nightmares is a, is a lot less. Your journey seeking asylum in 2015 took nearly three months. Yours and other refugee stories are so important. And I think what's so blindingly clear about your work is how important it is to hear everyone's stories do you think this is why you're potentially so passionate about storytelling through the medium of film and photography and making sure that people are given the opportunity to share their stories I mean 
I am a storyteller. I used to t- tell stories for a living when I was an English teacher. <laughs> and I, I believe in the power of storytelling. The reason why stories are very powerful is because they tend to connect us. If I tell you about the plight of refugees in Afghanistan by only giving you numbers, it won't be as powerful as if I put a face on the numbers. If I tell you about, for example, Fatima's stories or Abdullah's story and tell you about their upbringing and what they had to go through and what schools did they go to, what's their Spotify playlist or like where did they go traveling and then what happened and how did they have to flee, then it will be easier for you to understand the crisis or like the numbers. And I, that's what I did is that when I did my journey, I wanted to tell my story. So I chose documenting it, filming it. There were so many misconceptions back then about the numbers of people who are arriving or some people were asking questions of like why refugees have smartphones, for example, or like how come some of them have designer bags. So I I was reading that even before I did my journey and I concluded that there's a gap here. People don't really understand what drives someone to leave their home and to seek asylum in a different continent. And putting a face on a big crisis is something that I believe in because it does work. It, it, you know, it makes people uh, empathize. And more importantly, it drives action. People will get involved. People will go and like volunteer in a camp or raise money or do something to help. And yeah, so I, I filmed my whole journey and it was featured in the BBC series Exodus, Our Journey to Europe, which was like very successful in a way that I went for like other jobs to refugee camps. And I met people who told me that, well, we volunteered because we watched that documentary and it really affected us. And like, we wanted to do something to help. And for me, that's, that's a measure of success. If something actually drives change. I was actually really interested to read in the book, because you talk about the experience of being involved in the BBC documentary Exodus, which you won a BAFTA for. However, you wrote about how you feel you weren't properly credited or compensated for your involvement in it. Mm which was really sad to read, not altogether surprising, to be honest. (laughs) Has that affected your work as well, having had that experience of working on a big film like that and having so much success? Has that affected the work that you do since, presumably to make sure that the same thing doesn't happen to other people? Absolutely, yes. I had like hours and hours of rushes. I filmed my whole journey and then I met the filmmakers who told me that they're making this series, which is basically, it it was the same concept. They went to other countries, gave people smartphones to film their journeys and they would also follow them and film them along the way. So I had already done that independently and I've had this very crucial rushes, which were essential to the success of the documentary. Now, I I wasn't a documentary filmmaker. I was a teacher, so I don't know the industry very well. But I asked two questions, and and I I asked if I was going to be paid or credited, to which they both answered yes. And the reason why I asked that, because I don't like to do work for free. I mean, no one should be doing any work for free. (laughs) And people should be credited for their work. So when that didn't happen, it was a massive letdown, because that was my first... I am now a documentary filmmaker, you know? and But that was my introduction to the industry, which really didn't really help my confidence. It wasn't a positive experience. And as a result, I, I had a phase where I was like, should I do something else? I really want to make films, but it might happen again. So it did change me. The way I work now when I photograph or film people is that I give them full agency. I am very honest and clear and open about the work that we're doing, what to expect and what not to expect. And also like when I am about to start working on a project, I fight to get the right credit and to be paid fairly, you know. And there was a case where I was going to work on a project, and I'm not going to name names, but they said, oh, well, yeah, but, I mean, you're Syrian. 
And I was like, yeah, but that doesn't mean that I get paid less. <laughs> I can provide you with the same service and like I have the certain skills. So if being Syrian, that doesn't mean that I should be paid less than someone who's British. Wow. And yeah, I, exploiting other people's stories and not giving them the credit and paying them is something that I try to fight really hard right now. It feels like it was just one of the letdowns, perhaps, that um, you were presented with when you arrived in the UK. Obviously, there's what I really appreciated about the story is you always reference incredible moments of kindness. But what was interesting to read about, in particular for me, was how you emphasised that you always saw Europe as a kind of heartland of democracy. But in the book, you write about how you were profoundly let down by the reality. It must have been really challenging to realise that when you when you arrived. I mean, our first encounter with Europe, when we did our second crossing, our first crossing to Europe, the boat sank, we couldn't make it. The second crossing, we were beaten up by European border control. In Greece? In Greece, yes, in the Aegean. That was literally our first encounter. They were beating us with sticks and they took the fuel tank from the dinghy and broke the engine and left us midwater without any fresh water. So that's a really big letdown because expectations didn't really align with what happened. My expectation was, wow, I'm fleeing a dictatorship. I'm going to this continent, which the le- my, my level of naivete was very high because I expected like, you know, where people are respected and treated equally, and, 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 but that didn't happen. On the contrary, they left us to die. But what I tried to do th- while writing this book is that I wanted to talk about the negative experiences, such as that one, but I also wanted to talk about the positive ones. Because when we talk about Europe, I tend in my writing to separate governments from people, from like communities, so while governments right now, and especially now, it's even worse than what we did the journey in 2015, 2016, is that governments now have completely shut their borders. They've completely militarized and put fences on the borders. Pushbacks are happening, which are against international law. They're happening in Greece. They're happening in Croatia. They're happening in Lithuania. The British government's rhetoric around refugees also is it's, it's inhumane, to say the least. So I talk about that, but I also talk about communities and what they've done to help and uh, how I personally benefited from the kindness of strangers that I met along the way. There are so many instances that I can think about. One that springs to mind is when there was a man, I think in Calais, giving out people jumpers and then he ran up by the time that you you reached your point in the queue and he gave you the jumper from his back. And there are these yeah. moments of kindness from individuals throughout. And I have to say the world feels seemingly heavier and heavier every week it's it's a bleak bleak time (laughs) and I found reading about those moments of kindness from individuals uplifting how did these moments from individuals impact you and how in moments when the world feels heavy is that what you find yourself coming back to in order to feel a bit lighter you know hope on its own can be very passive right so I'm gonna take you as a case study here okay you don't just hope that the fashion industry change their ethics. You actually go out there and do something about it. <laughs> so when, when hope is paired with action, it can become very positive and it become very active. So what I've tried to do in the book is that I didn't... It, the people that I met along the way throughout this whole journey, from my prison cell in Syria all the way to Britain, is that people who've done incredible things you know, in that situation, no matter how small they were, 
it's really restored my faith in humanity. So when that man in, in the Calais and jungle gave me his jumper after he ran out of jumpers, that is, it could be a small act. For, for me, it was, despite how bleak my situation was, you know, I was stateless. I was homeless. I had no passports. I literally had no roof over my head. I hit rock bottom. But this man, he made a conscious decision to be positive and kind. And instantly, like, it made me, like, feel hopeful again and made me continue. And I think this is how I see it right now. What gives me hope during these big times is people who are out there doing incredible things. People who are trying to change the world in any way possible. And it doesn't have to be this grand action. No, you can, you can do something very small. Just like giving a jumper to someone who needs it. And it, it will bring a lot of positivity. That's really encouraging. Yeah, thank you. I was having like a, a, I went around to see my mum yesterday and we were having a cup of tea and I was just like, you know, in in that kind of moment of feeling really doomy and like, what does all of this even matter? And she was like, you can only do what you can do and you have to exactly. trust that everyone is doing all, mm. all that they can do. And then we have, we have yeah. this ripple effect and lots of people doing as much as possible. It can get very overwhelming sometimes. Because the world sometimes feel like it's falling apart in terms of climate, in terms of like our societies or politics or like these man-made crises around the world. I mean, if you are doing your bits, that's enough. You don't have to, to, to worry about everything else. Just do your bits and things will be better. But otherwise, it'll get, it'll get very overwhelming. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. You touched on climate and the IPCC report was recently released. This is a comprehensive assessment report about the state of scientific, technical and socio-economic knowledge on climate change, its impacts and future risks and options for reducing the rate at which climate change is taking place. It's conducted by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is why we have IPCC. Now, I'm really keen to talk to you more about this because as the climate crisis worsens, and this report has said it will worsen for the next 30 years, we will have more climate refugees and more displaced people. I'm really interested to hear your thoughts on this. What does this mean for the future of climate refugees and what would you like to see change? I would like to see some compassion in politicians. Because as long as the focus is on how do we secure our borders, as, as long as we want the politics of isolation and like closing our borders and protecting our borders, this is the mantra I have been hearing since I got here. Let's protect our borders. Let's keep our borders safe. Yeah, but, but what about everyone else? 
you know, because it's inevitable that people will flee. Numbers will keep on increasing because of the climate and because of the other man-made crises. And if we keep focusing on how we secure our borders and forget about everyone else, it's really not going to help, you know? So if we take Britain as an example, Britain in the last few months, they've been talking about the new immigration bill, which is essentially, they want to create a two-tier system in the immigration and your right to asylum will be based on the journey that you've taken. So if you were resettled, you will be granted, you know, you can have access to, to, to welfare, you can, have, uh, apply, you can apply for family unification. But if you took an irregular route, then that will limit your access to welfare or to like family unification, etc. So that's not going to work, especially that at the same time, the British government, while issuing this, they have cut the foreign aid budget from 0.7% of GDP to 0.5%. So if I don't want to fund projects abroad, you know, one of the strongest economies in the world, as like a British economy, if I'm cutting my fund to projects abroad that are, you know, providing fresh water to, to communities, protecting women and children, and at the same time, I want to limit the number of people who will arrive here, that's not helpful. That's not a politics of compassion. What I would like is to see, especially in Europe, is that you know European governments and the British government, they take their fair share of refugees and migrants in the world because so far they're not. Britain has less than 1% of the refugee population now in the world. But despite that, we, you, you, they, they complain the most about immigration and refugees. It must feel so frustrating to feel like there is this rhetoric of misinformation. It is frustrating and also, it's, um, also disappointing I'll also give you an example. During the referendum, the Leave campaign put billboards that said that Turkey is joining the EU and millions of people will end up coming to Britain, which is a lie because <laughs> Turkey hasn't joined the EU and millions of people didn't come from Turkey to Britain. The frustrating thing is that people voted, so they practice their democratic rights, which is voting, based on lies. So while we say that it's a democratic thing, okay, it's, but to me, it's like a delusional democracy because if I'm voting based on lie, that's not democracy. And this misinformation, which is often recycled in the media, because recently the number of boats which are crossing the channels have increased, okay? And every time this is reported in the media, they say a record number of boats have crossed today from France to, to the UK. However... The, the immigration statistics have been released recently. The number of asylum seekers in Britain dropped by, I think, around 20% compared to last year. So yes, the number of boats increased. Because of the pandemic, people were not taking the lorries. So that's why they had to take the boats. But if you watch the news, you genuinely freak out. You freak out because you feel like there is this, you know, people are taking over or this conspiracy theory, the great replacement is that White people will be replaced by <laughs> by Middle Easterns and Asians and, and, and Black people. So it's, it is very frustrating. And last week, I did a life in the UK test. And this is a test that you have to do when you're preparing to apply for citizenship. And one of the questions I found it very interesting is like the percentage of people in Britain who have a grandparent who wasn't born in Britain is only 10%. Imagine. Wow. Wow. It's only 10% of like, people in Britain who have a grandparent who wasn't born in Britain. It's a distraction. The reason why refugees and migrants are always weaponized by politicians because it's a distraction from the actual failures. 
you know, Britain has more food banks than McDonald's. How is this even possible, you know, in a country like this? It's because of decades of austerity. It's of like mishandling the pandemic. It's because of the offshore funds. It's because of all the billionaires. So it's not us, you know, it's not us that are bankrupting Britain. You write about in the book how you're entitled to a certain amount of money per week or you were entitled to a certain amount of money per week. You never took a penny from the UK government. Yeah. You were a frontline worker during the pandemic. You volunteered to work for the NHS at your local hospital as a cleaner. And you actually ended up literally changing policy. So can you talk to us about what happened to you during the pandemic and, and the job that you did with the NHS? Yes. So when the pandemic hit, now I know what happened. So back then I thought I was losing my mind. But now I know that I was walking in the world of triggers. Right. <laughs> because right. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah um, because, you know, seeing queues outside the shops, the, the panic, the, the people like staying at home, that reminded me of, of what happened back home in, in Syria. So as a way of coping, I wanted to do something. So that's a, for a selfish reason. I'll start with my selfish reason. To, for why I wanted to take that job is because I wanted to take some control. I wanted to do something to help or otherwise I was going to lose my mind. But also not, not a selfish reason, I would say, is because the NHS desperately wanted cleaners to disinfect hospitals on a daily basis. And I saw the job post. It's my local hospital in Leytonstone when I lived there. So I took the job. It was a very demanding job physically and mentally, but I did the job as best as I can. And while I was there, everyone who worked in my ward were migrants, people who were not born in Britain. So I was just fascinated by their stories. And I started, like, I, with their permission, taking their portraits on my phone during breaks and posting their stories online and also filming with them, with the hospital's permission, of course. We were under so much pressure. We were witnessing things which are very difficult, the scale of the death in hospitals, the suffering, the people being separated from their families. But we were still like together fighting like a unit until one day I was walking to the hospital and I saw, I read in the Independent that the government announced a bereavement scheme. And the bereavement scheme essentially is a scheme which will protect migrant workers on the front line, protect their families in case they die. So anyone who works in a hospital, their family get indefinite leave to remain, which is the bare minimum. Now, the government, when they did that, decided to exclude cleaners porters and ward hosts and if anyone who's listening right now has ever been to a hospital you know that these jobs are mostly done by migrants so I thought that was very unfair and I struggled to understand the reasoning behind why they would do that they should start with these people you know because they're on minimum wage they 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 needed the most so I I was thinking about what I can do and because I'm a filmmaker you know I believe in the power of the moving image and what putting a face on us in a bigger story making it personal it could do something so I recorded a video to Boris Johnson it was like less than three minutes I put it on Twitter and four hours later I was trending and my video was watched like four or five million times and it was shared by tens of thousands of people and as a result the government announced a U-turn and they included everybody which was incredible. It, I Honestly I, I think it's so amazing and it's it's so encouraging because I think so often we feel like, what can one person do? What's the point? And the fact that you made that change and for people who you've talked about, you know, your fellow frontline workers, you've talked about them as your family and to have made that change with them in mind, that must have felt so, so good. Genuinely, like I was over the moon. I was proud because tens of thousands of people like benefited from that U-turn. The bedrock 
of the NHS, people in desperate need for some protection while they're risking their lives and their families' lives. And I, yes, it made me feel really good, but then I shouldn't really be doing that in the first place because the government shouldn't be coming up with this malicious policy where they exclude the people who need this policy. And just like Marcus Rashford, you know, shouldn't have to like campaign to feed hungry children. It's not our job. However, it is our job to hold the government accountable. And I think I did that and uh, it felt really, really good. (laughs) Do you, would you ever consider going into politics? Big question, I know. Yes, definitely, 100%. I would love to, but I still don't know where I can make change the most, whether it's from the inside or the outside. I feel like, especially in Britain, I mean, America, they have AOC. We don't have like... that many influential leaders. We don't have leaders who can inspire us, who are like doing great work that can encourage us to to get involved more. And I think that's why people in Britain are becoming more and more disillusioned with politicians and politics in general here. But getting into politics is not an easy game. Like I am learning, like now I'm in a phase where like I, to be a politician is to be a leader. And I want, I'm learning how to become a leader. So if and when I, I decide to get into politics, I have the means to be good at it. Wow, what a next step that would be. <laughs> Honestly, reading that... You quite really a career change. <laughs> yeah, quite a career change. But I guess nothing would probably feel like much of a surprise. I don't know, like reading your book, <laughs> there's so much of it that just feels like almost like a film. Yeah, I got that comment actually from someone who read it and he said, I had to remind myself every once in a while that this is a true story. <laughs> would you ever consider... I'm sure you'll have people wanting to make make your memoir into a movie yes there are people who are already like um, interested but I haven't made a decision yet I might not do it but I don't I still don't I mean I don't know I could literally talk to you all day about absolutely everything but I'm conscious of Me time too. how would you feel about a quick fire round I might struggle but let's try it quick fire with Hassan wake up early or have a lion uh, have a lion full English or fish and chips fish and chips falafel and hummus or stuff Vi- falafel and hummus, falafel and hummus, falafel and hummus. <laughs> Marmite or jam? Oh, definitely jam. Pizza or pasta? Pizza. Filmmaking or photography? Oh, you can't do that to me. Filmmaking. TV or radio? TV. Podcasts or Netflix? Netflix. Sunrise or sunset? Sunrise. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Routine. Question for you. How do you make the world's best hummus? How do you make the world's best hummus? So you soak your chickpeas overnight and then you turn it into a paste. You mash the chickpeas and then you put them in the fridge and then you put them in a blender. You add tahini, olive oil, garlic and salt and you blend it and that's it. And don't add any other crazy ingredients because I feel like white people have colonized our hummus and they started adding like avocado and like marmite and all of that. Please do not colonize our hummus. (laughs) Is lemon allowed? Lemon is allowed, yes. Did I not mention that? Yes. But tinned chickpeas, absolutely not. I mean, you can. You can you can get away with it. But if you want to make like proper hummus, you you bring like the, you know, like a, not tinned, the ones that come like a, um, in a bag. The colonization of food is a whole other podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. Despite everything you've been through, you're always resolutely positive. And I think listeners will have heard you have a great laugh and a great sense of humor. I'd love to hear what is currently bringing you hope. I think I have hope in young people. They are way more engaged than we used to be when we were young. And they're like 
out there campaigning and protesting. And I see these people on TikTok, like doing explanations about certain policies and like what to do and being viewed by millions. I think, I think that's hopeful. I think the fact that young people are being more and more switched on engaged brings me, brings me hope. Love that. If you could advise listeners to try one thing today to help them feel hopeful, what would it be? I would say that because, as we said before, the world seems bleak right now, it's always good to look at the positives as well, <laughs> to outweigh the negatives. To me, I am genuinely obsessed with the success or how fast we, as a humanity, were able to develop the vaccine against COVID-19. I mean, it, what usually takes a decade was done in less than 18 months. So that is positive medicine and, and, and science. And uh, yeah, just, I think focus on the positives. It helps you balance. And finally, what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? No pressure to achieve anything else. <laughs> You've already done so much, but I know you're someone who is ambitious. So I'm wondering if there's there's one thing. Well, there's a few. I would love to be a dad one day, inshallah, one day. And I would like to get involved in politics. I want to be making some more positive change. That's it, really whether on a personal level or like in my community, in my neighborhood or like in my city. That's, that's what I would like to do. Thank you so much. This has been such an inspiring and encouraging interview. <laughs> and I'm also just so in awe of you and a huge congratulations on your book. It is such an accomplishment and it's going to be Thank so you. successful. So huge congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this conversation. As always, please do check out the show notes where you can buy his book and of course donate to Choose Love, even if you have the smallest amount to give. I know they would really, really appreciate it. Make sure you join me again next week as I'm going to be chatting to Gina Martin, who is a campaigner and speaker, best known for founding and running the national campaign to make upskirting illegal. She is a badass and it's a really wonderful conversation that I can't wait to share with you. In the meantime, I hope you have a beautiful day and I'll see you soon. Bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.